Embedded in every technology is a bias or powerful idea, sometimes two or three powerful ideas. Technology leads us to favor and value certain perspectives and accomplishments and to undervalue others. What we might not realize is every technology has a philosophy, which is a given expression in how the technology makes people use their minds, in what it makes us do with our bodies and how it codifies our world, in which of our senses it amplifies, in which of our emotional and intellectual tendencies it disregards. These are the words of noted media ecologist, Neil Postman. Hi, I'm Matt McGuire. I'm a PhD student studying educational technology at the University of New Brunswick. My passion and career path have led me to the field of media ecology, and it's changed the way I think about technology, education, and life. Like many media ecologists, I believe technology influences the way people think, act, feel, and make sense of the world. Because of this, I think it's important that teachers understand its influence and engage in dialogue with students around technology's impact on our everyday lives in order to better understand it and make thoughtful, informed decisions around its use. By listening to this podcast, you'll gain awareness of media ecology concepts, you'll hear insights from some of its noted scholars and activists, and you'll learn some practical tips and tricks on how you and your students can better understand, use, design, and create technologies that might make our world a better place. Welcome to Media Ecology 101 for Educators. So what is media ecology? I asked that question to Dennis Kelly, professor at the University of Texas at Tyler, who recently wrote the book Mapping Media Ecology, Introduction to the Field. I guess a major definition is the study of media as environments. The, the notion that um, media come to um, create uh, uh, surroundings that govern how we how we process information, how we relate to one another, how we think, how we value. But the the definition that I that works best for me that I present in my own classes is. Um, is the study of the interrelationship between media, culture, and consciousness. Because that captures that we're focused not just on any individual elements in isolation, but how they how they interact. And the, the primary um, agents that interact are um, people, so that's consciousness, awareness of people, culture, that's also people, you know, groups of people, and media. Or technology. Marshall McLuhan first broadened the definition of technology, which he called media, to include any human invention or innovation. You may remember McLuhan. He's the Canadian icon that said, the medium is the message. If you're Canadian, you may have seen a short clip on him as part of the Heritage Minutes video series from the 90s. McLuhan believed that the technologies we use not only become the way we do things, but they also influence the attitudes, beliefs, and values of our society. He explains, The message of any medium or technology is the change of scale or pace or pattern that it introduces into human affairs. The crucial idea that McLuhan is trying to communicate about media here 
is that the information they carry is not nearly as important as what they're doing to us, how they guide the things we do, how they influence the way we think, how they orientate our bodies, and even how they structure our brains. In this way, media act as environments in which certain structures exist and where interactions take place. You may be wondering, as I once did, what's the difference between a medium and a technology? One of media ecology's most prominent forefathers, Neil Postman, helps distinguish between a technology and a medium in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. He says, A technology is to a medium as the brain is to the mind. Like the brain, a technology is a physical apparatus. Like the mind, a medium is a use to which a physical apparatus is put. A technology, in other words, is merely a machine. A medium is the social and intellectual environment a machine creates. So what might teachers need to know about media ecology to begin to understand what encompasses the field? I asked Dr. Robert K. Logan, Professor Emeritus of Physics and School of the Environment at the University of Toronto, and co-author with McLuhan. Bob, how would you describe media ecology to an educator who may only know the name Marsha McLuhan or Neil Postman? Other than that, how would you explain what media ecology is to them? Okay. Every technology, every medium interacts with all the other media. And so an ecology is about, in biology, is about how one biological organism interacts with all other biological organisms and their physical environment. So the media ecology would just extend that notion and every medium interacts with every other medium. And therefore, it's an, to understand them is make use of an ecological approach. Neil Postman first used the metaphor of ecology to emphasize the interest in the interaction between media and human beings, as well as a culture's symbolic balance. He used the analogy of a petri dish to illustrate the relationship between a medium and a culture, saying a petri dish is a medium in which a bacterial culture grows. In media ecological terms, a technology is a medium in which human culture is grown. Media ecologists believe that balance in our media environments is important to human survival. Think for a moment about the effect that occurs in nature when a new species is introduced into an environment. You don't have the former environment plus a new species. Everything in that environment is affected because of this new thing. And therefore, you have an entirely new interacting environment. In the same way, when a new technology is introduced into a society, the change isn't as much additive as it is ecological. It doesn't add something to the environment. It creates a new environment altogether. Perhaps one of the best examples of how a technology changed the world of humans is the mechanical clock. The introduction of the clock changed time for us, but I don't just mean our concept of time. The clock changed our experience with time. The invention of the mechanical clock changed the ecosystem of our culture by influencing the compartmentalization of time. Its form and function encouraged the creation of fixed intervals which people use to sequence their lives. We no longer rely on the sun and the moon to tell us when to get up and when to go to bed. In some ways, our alarm clocks have become our internal clocks and train us to get up at a certain time. 
we continue to quantify the use of time. Time that is counted is time that can be measured, and so we measure our lives in seconds, minutes, hours, days, months, and years. We've come to value this kind of quantifiable time, scheduling our daily tasks and appointments. The clock plays a major role in what our society values and how it operates. The clock turns time into a commodity. We speak of time as something that can be spent or wasted, saved or stolen. The more time we can save, the more time we can spend. We make time an object by using a preposition of it. Meetings have to be on time, musicians have to be in time, and some people work overtime. Born from these things is the scheduled school day, dividing the delivery of individual subjects into time slots with allotted times for breaks. But also born is the value and emphasis we place on efficiency and production, similar to that of the industrial workplaces, where efficiency and production are the main goals. We use the clock to determine how long subjects should be taught, and in turn, math is taught for 60 minutes a day. We shaped our clock, and thereafter, it shaped us. The invention of the clock didn't add something new to the Western world. It created a new world. The way the clock influenced and helped shape our society exemplifies a popular media ecology principle, that in every technology exists a bias or prejudice. In other words, the technology we use persuades us to favor and value certain perspectives and accomplishments over others, and it eventually makes it difficult for us to perceive any other way of doing things. So when media ecologists say media shape our environments, they aren't only referring to our physical landscape. Media also shaped the environment of human consciousness. In his book, The End of Education, Neil Postman combined his own ideas with some of the work of his predecessors into a set of media principles, which are essentially patterns of technology that can help teachers and students better recognize and understand the effects of media. Although such guidelines are uncommon in the media ecology canon, the McLuhan father-son combo had previously created a similar instrument called the Laws of Media, which are certainly upheld in Postman's principles. Postman's 10 principles can be distilled into six things teachers should know about technology. Educators can use these as a way to guide inquiry into media and to generate meaningful discussion around media's effects on people, culture, and consciousness. After I introduce each of these principles, I'll explore some practical approaches you can use in your classroom to help students improve their understanding of media and perhaps make better decisions around their use. Here they are, Postman's Principles. Number one, all technological change is a trade-off. For every advantage a new technology offers, there's a corresponding disadvantage. In other words, technology giveth and technology taketh away. Postman wanted people to reconsider the popular belief that technology meant progress without problems, or as he calls it, an unmixed blessing. An example of this in education is the shift toward everything digital. Students increasingly using the computer's QWERTY keyboard to type has shifted the emphasis away from pen and paper writing and almost entirely brought cursive writing to extinction. While typing on a computer is efficient, resourceful, and pretty much central to success in daily communication, writing by hand is better for retaining information, developing fine motor skills, reading historical documents, and maintaining focus. 
It's important for teachers to consider not only what is gained from using a technology, but also what is lost. Number two, the advantages and disadvantages of new technologies are never distributed evenly among the population. This means that every new technology benefits some and harms others. Most students now have the ability to engage with network tools while in school. However, once they're home, they may lack digital devices with access to high-speed internet. Teachers who require the use of these tools to complete work at home may be creating measures of disparity among their students. This inequity of access to the internet, and often devices, presents teachers with a quandary. An increasing number of schools and districts advocate for the use of digital tools for assignments, but students may not be able to access these platforms once they head home. Number three. Embedded in every technology is a bias that influences us to favor and value certain perspectives and accomplishments and to undervalue others. Like language, every technology has a philosophy, which is a given expression in how the technology makes people use their minds, in what it makes us do with our bodies, in how it codifies the world, in which of our senses it amplifies, in which of our emotional and intellectual tendencies it disregards. The use of predictive algorithms in today's web-based platforms is a good example of technological bias. Search engines and social media sites not only track human behavior in order to later predict what people are going to do, but they use this data to lead them to what a machine determines to be the most probable outcomes. With the increased awareness of our habits and activities, we're continually brought to the places that resemble where we've been. Our sense of spontaneity is further and further diminished and we start to resemble predictable machines. We shape our algorithms, and thereafter, they shape us. Simple observations of technological biases that exist in the technologies we use to teach and learn can inform teacher pedagogy. Number four, a new technology usually makes war against an old technology. It competes with it for time, attention, money, prestige, and a worldview. It's quite easy to see how the smartphone embodies all of these things. It's changed our worldview by bringing all things together. As a single device, it continues to displace countless older technologies, like the camera and video recorder, the photo album, the radio and portable music player, the calculator, the map and compass, the flashlight, the clock and wristwatch, books and notepads, calendars, board games and gaming systems, debit and credit cards, and of course, the landline phone. The list goes on. But as it brings all of these things together, in what ways is it changing our worldview of things like community and communication? As we've seen or perhaps experienced ourselves, instead of bringing people together, the smartphone, when used in certain ways, can distance us further. As brain researcher Robert Kuhn wrote, Few people understand the complexity of technological change that bring about new ways of thinking that are at once creative and innovative, volatile and turbulent, and nothing less than a shift in worldview. Number five. Technological change is not additive. It's ecological. A new technology doesn't merely add something. It changes everything. For me, the internet is the perfect modern-day example of this. When the internet was invented and became widely used, we didn't have the world plus the internet. We had a new world. 
Number six, all media become mythic, as if they're part of the natural order of things. As technologies become part of our everyday way of doing things, they fade to the background, and so their effects do as well. Postman used to ask his students if they knew when the alphabet was invented. His students were astonished, as if he was asking them when clouds or trees were invented. They hadn't thought of the alphabet as a technology or a human invention, yet the technology of writing has shaped the thoughts of the entire Western world, and certainly our education system. Like Postman's students, most of us are blind to writing's influence on the development of our thought patterns, our social institutions, and our identities. McLuhan used the analogy of a fish not knowing the water in which it swims to characterize humans' ignorance to the psychic and social effects of their technology. In the case of media environments in education settings, Postman said we don't recognize the influence and effects of our technology because we assume that what we're dealing with is not an environment, but merely a machine. Postman's principles can be applied to any technology, old or new, to identify its patterns and effects. Teachers can use these principles to better understand how technology shapes the way they plan, teach, and assess. Students can use these principles to determine how technology affects the way they study, the way they learn, or how they reach their goals. Both can use them to investigate how media shape and influence the way humans interact and make sense of the world. Okay, that was a quick and basic introduction to media ecology, and hopefully it's helped you understand the basics of the field. For those who wish to dig deeper, there are three books that serve as excellent resources. Lance Strait's Echoes and Reflections on Media Ecology as a Field of Study. Casey Lum's Perspectives on Culture, Technology, and Communication, The Media Ecology Tradition. And Dennis Calley's Mapping Media Ecology, Introduction to the Field. If you feel you have a basic understanding of media ecology, let's move ahead and look at a few tips and tools teachers and students can use to explore media environments. Postman's principles can be used in tangent with these approaches as somewhat of a foundation for critical inquiry. But there's one approach to media ecology that I believe is a must. It's first on our list. Number one. The importance of asking good questions. When it comes to understanding media, many media ecologists have gone to great lengths to emphasize the importance and effectiveness of asking questions. In order to solve problems, one might say we must begin with questions. What distinguishes one era of intellectuals from another, Susan Langer once wrote, is the questions it asks and the problems it recognizes rather than the answers it provides. To examine media, Marshall McLuhan, an educator himself, relied on probes, a term he used to characterize the common practice of asking exploratory or provocative questions. As he said in his famous Playboy interview, my purpose is to employ facts as tentative probes, as means of insight, of pattern recognition, rather than to use them in the traditional and sterile sense of classified data, categories, containers. I want to map new terrain rather than chart old landmarks. 
McLuhan's son, Eric, emphasized the importance of a probing approach to understanding media when he wrote, It is a matter of how you begin. If you begin with a theory, then one way or another your research winds up geared to making the case for or against the truth of the theory. Begin with theory, you begin with the answer. Begin with observation, you begin with questions. Robert Logan shares the same position as these scholars. He feels teachers should begin their study of media ecology by understanding their own medium, the classroom. Uh, The teacher should also be aware of the fact that the classroom, school, is, is a medium. And they have to be aware of the service and disservice of that particular medium. Are they using the medium of the classroom to disseminate information that they then ask their students to regurgitate on the test? Or are they using the medium of the classroom to provide provocative questions for their students so the students can explore ideas? The classroom should be a place not for answers, but for questions. More important to raise questions for the students to consider than to provide them with a bunch of facts. Too much of education is about cramming facts and information into the heads of the pupils. In this context, Postman's prolific quote rings true. He said, Children enter school as question marks and leave as periods. McLuhan might say that the process of learning is far more important than the discovery, and perhaps media ecologists would agree that asking questions is far more important than finding answers. Because as Postman attests, while answers are important, they will vary depending on who is answering, in what place or context they're answering, and when they're answering. Teachers who are interested in incorporating media ecology into their pedagogy must first model for their students the process of asking probing questions, emphasizing the importance of critical inquiry. But teachers can't ask all the questions, and so they should be quick to hand over the reins and encourage students to practice asking exploratory questions. While teachers and students will develop their own continuity of questions, here are a few examples to get them started. How might this technology affect the way I teach? What aspects of my teaching does it enhance, and how am I limited by this technology? How might it change the learning environment? How might this technology affect the way students learn? What does this technology allow people to do? But also, what might this technology undo? What might this technology allow students to learn, and by using it, what might they be forgetting? Who benefits and who loses from the use of this technology? What messages are being conveyed more clearly? And what technologies cause more static? Dr. Logan emphasizes the need for teachers to model and give time for moments of pause when asking and fielding questions. All right, let's take the word education. I think it means to draw out. You have to look up the etymology of educate. But I somehow remember remember that idea. I just want to note for the listeners that uh, my 
presentation here tends to be choppy, that's because I'm thinking and I'm not just spouting um, well-rehearsed bits of information, but I'm being provoked by Matt to uh, think about some really deep concerns. And therefore, there's a lot of pauses and ahs and and such as I think through these challenging questions. Along with asking good questions, McLuhan's approach included observation. Observation doesn't only mean the way things look to our eyes. The process is more involved than that. Observation also includes the way we observe things, what we observe, and how we make sense of it. Postman's idea that our technologies become mythic means that we need to start looking at technology differently. We need to look not only at what the technology does, but what it does to us. This process involves the other senses too, including our sense of perception. So how can students become better observers? For example, how can students use observation as a tool to anticipate the effects of new media, the benefits and consequences of using technology before they actually occur? Andrew McLuhan thinks McLuhan would direct our attention to the artist. The arts uh, play a huge role in, in McLuhan studies in the McLuhan tradition. Um, and that's no secret. And by the arts, he, he included poetry, he included music, he included painting and sculpture, um, all, all, all modes of human expression. And the reason why he placed such importance on the arts and on artists is because, well, it comes back to perception. Uh, artists are the people in society who are constantly honing their perception. They're always looking for the novel. They're always looking for what's new. They're always looking for new ways to experience and new ways to explore and new ways to tell us about it. And because of that, they're generally years ahead of where we are in understanding what's happening um, because we just aren't that tuned into our environment. So um, that's the value of the arts uh, and, and why we should um, you know, support the arts and maybe pay, pay a little bit more attention to not just um, you know, the ostensible appeal of whatever arts are giving us, but what they're actually telling us about what's happening. Teachers and students can also learn from the artist and develop their own observation skills by focusing more on what's occurring with and around the technology, orienting their questions around how it changes human thought and behavior, rather than asking only what the technology can do. One important design technique we can learn from visual artists is the emphasis on the relationship between figure and ground. This leads us to our next tool. Number two. Figure ground. You may be familiar with the terms figure, foreground, and background used in visual art. This visual organization is the essential perceptual grouping that allows people to recognize objects using their eyes. When I think of figure and ground, I tend to think of the drawings in which two pictures are juxtaposed upon each other, like the dual image of the vase and the two faces looking at each other. At first, we may see the vase, but when we train our eyes to look elsewhere, we see the two faces and the vase recedes to the background. 
What's important to note here is that the outline of one image is also the outline of the other. Figure and ground create and define each other. This is true of all structural relations. McLuhan points out that, contrary to popular belief, both figures can be seen at the same time, but it might take a bit of unlearning. So what does this have to do with media and education? Figure and ground, although commonly associated with visual phenomena, can be applied to other situations. Marshall McLuhan suggested the approach of analyzing figure and ground as a way of studying media. He believed technologies were figures, but they created ground. We've been calling this ground an environment. The ground is often an inconspicuous part of the picture we don't notice or recognize because the technology itself monopolizes our attention as the figure in the foreground. But the background often provides insight into the structure of a medium. Following in the footsteps of his father, Eric, and his grandfather, Marshall, Andrew McLuhan has been teaching media ecology concepts for many years. He uses figure ground analysis as a way to recognize patterns in the interaction of people, media, culture, and consciousness, and the changes that come from these interactions. Andrew McLuhan explains how it works. Another word for medium or environment is ground. And you can say that any given technology is the figure. Uh, the ground is the environment uh, of effects of services and disservices of psychological and social effects, which are the result of um, any given technology. Um, and it's a really powerful thing to teach because, uh, especially if you have a whiteboard or a blackboard handy, um, you call on the class to help um, look at what this ground is made of. And, you know, uh, for the example of the smartphone, which is kind of my go-to because it's, it's easy to look at. Everybody can relate to it. Um, there are so many things which are, are part of the environment or the ground of the smartphone. You have electricity, you have networks, you have all these things involved like uh, cell phone towers and technology and education and raw materials. And then you have its effect on, on your daily uh, life, how you relate to other people your social life, how people relate to each other, your working life, how the smartphone is part of your daily business and commerce. And, you know, you can, you can go around and do this for half an hour or longer even um, and put things together and note the relationships between them. And once you see just how big this ground is and how interconnected everything is, um, it, it really opens your eyes because you don't tend to look at this, um, this total field, this environment. You tend to look at bits and pieces. Uh, and then one great thing I like to do is ask the audience to suppose that you wake up tomorrow morning and your smartphone doesn't work and neither does your friends. And in fact, smartphones are never going to work again for what, whatever reason. What effect would this have on your life? And it's great doing this with especially elementary school children because they don't know anything different than a, a world of the smartphone. And there's an audible gasp in the room when you suggest that you're never going to be able to use it again. Um, it, but it really drives home the point that these things are, are such a part of our society now and we wouldn't know how to go around um, our day-to-day -day lives without them. Um, and so for this for this reason, you, you understand why the ground or the medium or the totality of effects is so important. 
and why it's necessary to understand and to study that environment um, because it affects everything. It affects the way that your brain operates. It affects the way your senses work uh, on their own and with each other. It affects your relationships. It affects your school. It affects your work. It affects everything. Teachers and students can find the hidden ground in and of their own classrooms and exchange thoughts and ideas with each other. Teachers might try changing the seating arrangement from widespread to close together. They can change the seats or remove the seats entirely. How does the changing of ground affect the classroom environment when it's moved outdoors? Think about something as simple as a calculator used in a classroom. If we look at the figure, the calculator, and ask, what can this technology do? We come to a very simple answer of calculating equations easily and efficiently. If we look at what occurs in the background when a calculator is used, the background being the classroom environment, we might see a class of students sitting silently, individually punching numbers into a device to determine an answer to a question. If all students follow the correct procedure, all students will be given the correct answer. One way to determine the effect the technology has on the classroom is to remove the technology itself. What would the classroom environment look like if the calculator was removed? Perhaps we would see a group of students learning the process of long division together. A question asked by one student may contribute to or challenge the overall understanding of the process by others in the group, which in turn may evoke further discussion and exploration. Here's something to consider. When a calculator is used to determine the solution to an equation, the implicit process of strengthening knowledge and understanding as a social group may diminish. The activity of learning is substituted with the functioning of a device. The technological device determines a calculated solution which is infallible and therefore no further discussion is needed. In addition to asking, what can this technology do? It's important to ask, what might this technology undo? When we use technology to make the process of learning easier or more efficient, we risk undermining the importance of learning through the process, however long it might take. In other words, when the work of people become displaced by devices, the contribution of people learning and working together is greatly underestimated, and their accumulation of knowledge is broadly underappreciated. Here are a few other ideas for exploring figure ground, some of which are from an excellent book for educators called City as Classroom, which was written by Marshall and Eric McLuhan and Catherine Hutchin. Kindergarten teachers might begin by asking their students to bring in a show-and-tell object that might be unfamiliar to their peers. The student asks the class to guess what the object is. If they become stumped, the teacher can then ask the student to use the object as it's supposed to be used, and then the class will most likely guess what it is. Ask students to identify a favorable ground in which to read a serious book. Would it be a quiet space like a library or a loud space such as a cafeteria? Language arts teachers might ask their students to swap out the setting of a story with another, juxtaposing settings to see how ground acts as an underlying structure to support its figures. When students write, the setting in which they situate their figure is important. The excitement of a car chase is created differently in the setting of a busy street in London than it is on a Nevada desert highway or the Indy 500. 
One group of students might create a recording of familiar sounds and play them over top of unfamiliar sounds. They can ask another group of students to identify the familiar sounds. Students might explore what can be done to make this task easier or more difficult. High school students might examine the figure and ground of a search engine or a social media platform and observe the predictive algorithms and data mining at play and how these affect the environment of the net. In Cydia's classroom, it's emphasized that students take this process outside of the walls of the school and into their communities, what McLuhan thought to be the real classroom. From their homes and their cities to the nation and beyond, students need to make sense of the technologies that shape their world. Being a teacher myself, I know there are those listening who are worried about time constraints and fulfilling the requirements of their assigned curriculum. Dennis Kelly says they need not worry about teaching an additional media ecology curriculum. He says media ecology is not a discipline, and so we shouldn't try to teach it as one. Teachers and students can incorporate media ecology concepts and approaches into their everyday pedagogy and subject strands. No matter what grade level or subject you teach, explorations can be made from a media ecological perspective if changes in technology can be linked to changes in people, perception, consciousness, and culture, says Professor Callie. I asked him, what useful approaches can students and teachers take to better understand media? Which brings us to our third and final tool. Number three, historical critical approach. It's more difficult to observe the effects of a new or current media because they're still in the process of shaping human thought, feeling, and behavior. It's back to the fish not knowing the water in which it swims analogy. Whereas, as Dennis Kelly explains, if we examine the technologies of the past, we can see more clearly how their effects tell us about a society's structures and values. Dennis Kelly. One of the most common ones that I've seen or that I came across um, earliest in my, my own study of the field is the historical critical approach in which um, scholars take um, either a technology itself, kind of like, let's say, the telephone, and um, chart its evolution and and the effects of that evolution on how people related to one another, how they how they thought of themselves, um, how they how they thought even. So you know, if you take that kind of historical approach, you, you can see how the the medium is interacting with the culture and um, and causing changes in the culture. As Callie described. Students might choose to examine a physical technology, from its inception to its obsolesce. But they might also examine things like systems, structures, conditions, rules, ideas, symbols, or languages. For example, students and teachers who familiarize themselves with changes in our communications methods by investigating the history and development of language might reflect on how these not only affected the way we communicate, but the society in which we live today. Some media ecologists believe that one makes discoveries about the world by inquiring into language, inventing new words, playing with metaphors, and in general, searching for ambiguities and partially concealed meanings. Many media ecologists have used history as a counter-environment from which they can view contemporary happenings. I don't use the term investigate to only mean a web search for history and development of language. 
By investigation, I'm referring to teachers providing students with opportunities to express themselves through a variety of means and modes. Asking questions and engaging in discussion, acting out and role-playing, designing games, movies, and artifacts. Students may take on the approach of mapping the chronological movement of language, from actions and sounds to speech and symbols, like the alphabet. Then moving from writing to print, telegraphy to the electronic communications, all the way to today's virtual environments. The idea here, as Kelly points out, is to understand how language is perpetually changing, mirroring cultural influence. Robert Logan emphasizes the importance of the historical critical approach too, but he does so by adding that the only way to effectively do this is by engaging the interests and passions of students, the things they care about and the things which concern them. Dr. Logan. But history is uh, a place where we can learn things. And what do we want to learn from history? We want to learn about lessons that might apply to our life. This idea of keeping relevant is one that Postman emphasizes, but he too doesn't discount the importance of history. But teachers should exercise caution and not let this idea of content be mixed with media. What I mean by this is, just because a technology is new and engaging doesn't necessarily mean it's the right tool for the job. Before we conclude this podcast, I want to bring attention to what I feel is a main concern of the media ecologist. You may have noticed it throughout this podcast. It's the notion that the health and balance of our entire ecosystem are affected by the interactions between media and human beings, and that human beings can find a greater balance through the media choices they make. From a pedagogical approach, knowing these biases of media allows educators and students the opportunity to choose those technology that are more effective for accomplishing specific tasks and contributing to the common good and avoid those which impose limits to them. In other words, understanding the biases of media allows us to better align them with our educational goals. I want to thank you for joining me in this podcast. I hope it's provided a basic understanding of media ecology in relation to teaching and learning, along with a few tips and tools to explore in the classroom. If any of what you've heard makes sense, you may be experiencing the same type of wonderment I did. Why have we as educators and as human beings not invested more time and consideration toward the notion that the tools we use to make sense of the world actually shape our understanding of it? Perhaps it's because we as humans tend not to recognize the influence our technologies have on us because over time, all media become part of the natural order of things we may not think of them as mediators to our world. After learning a bit more about media ecology, teachers and students might wish to employ a means of technological modesty, what Neil Postman describes as an exercising of more control over technology, to not simply see technological innovation and human progress as the same thing. Whether you teach primary or secondary grades, vocational education, college or university, I hope media ecology offers a new lens through which to view teaching and learning and the role media play within it. Media ecology is not a subject to teach. It's a different approach to looking at things, a new perspective and way of thinking. 
an effort to find balance in the technologies that mediate our lives. As Margaret Cassidy notes in her book, Bookends, The Changing Media Environment of American Classrooms, technologies in education should be regarded as the subject of inquiry and criticism in their own right. She sees, as I do, the potential for a different relationship between technology and schools, one that recognizes technology in its larger societal context. I want to thank all those who took the time to talk with me and share some of their insights and ideas with us. A big shout-out goes to Dennis Calley, Bob Logan, Andrew McLuhan, whose voices and perspectives can be heard in this presentation. There are voices who weren't heard, but who also contributed to this production. I wish to thank Lance Strait, Kathy Adams, Robert Albrecht, Alex Kuskis, Peggy Cassidy, Corey Anton, Ellen Rose, and Roger Saul, who served as teachers to me by sharing their knowledge and guidance. I also want to acknowledge the books Echoes and Reflections by Lance Strait and Mapping Media Ecology by Dennis Calley, whose content provided me with much direction in the creation of this podcast. I'll be posting all of the full-length interviews with my guests for those interested in digging deeper into media ecology and hearing different perspectives, so keep an eye out for those. I want to conclude this podcast with a quote from Neil Postman, who said, If students get a sound education in the history, social effects, and psychological biases of technology, they may grow to be adults who use technology, rather than be used by it. Thank you.